calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode 30, the last episode of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 77, Diurnia Orbital, July 17th, 2373. When we got to Diurnia, I wasn't sure what to expect. Our last word from the TIC in Greenfields was that Herring had disappeared. The single ship had not responded to the Greenfields recall and had jumped before it could be intercepted. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, it did not arrive where the filed flight plan said it would. The TIC wouldn't release any more information on an active investigation. With passengers aboard, we spent little time talking about the situation while underway. The Kilpatricks knew of our situation. Ms. Kilpatrick even offered me condolences on my loss. Still, it was a subject that we didn't bring up around the dinner table, for which I was extremely grateful. After we docked, Ms. Maloney sent a short message to Kirsten Kingsley, asking her to join us for lunch aboard the Iris. Without any hard information and the lack of any newsy gossip, we decided we needed to know more about what was happening on station before we ventured out. With the last of the passengers and cargo ashore, we all gathered in the galley for a strategy session. It's too soon, Ms. Maloney said. Jarvis has barely had time to learn that things went pear-shaped on him. He can't have had more than a few days since he heard from Greenfields. Chief Stevens pursed her lips and considered. Depends on what kind of arrangements he had with his team on Greenfields. There isn't a DST office there, so he had to be working through an intermediary. He managed to get Chief Bailey there in time to meet us, Miss Arione said, and I'd bet he wasn't there alone either. Miss Maloney looked at her with a frown. That's a good point, but getting ahead of us wasn't that difficult. He had weeks to put his team in place. Maybe, but how'd he know we'd... Miss Arione stopped herself in mid-sentence. Of course, the lawsuit. Exactly, Chief Stevens said. By filing the lawsuit, they knew exactly when and where to find you. They didn't need to follow. Just be where you're going. Kirsten will know something, Ms. Maloney said. Chief Bailey was an employee of DST, so how they handled his death should give us some insight. There's another factor, I said. TIC must be working here. If Jarvis is behind this, Ms. Arione snorted derisively. If Jarvis is behind this, I repeated, he's going to have to keep a low profile for now. It won't do him any good to stop us, only to spend the rest of his life on Zazie. 
Ms. Arione looked skeptical, but both Chief Stevens and Ms. Maloney nodded. Kirsten Kingsley arrived at 12.05 and apologized as she stepped through the lock with Adrian in tow. We're trying to settle a bulk purchase arrangement with the Chandlery. With as many ships as we have operating in the area, even a small discount could add up. She grimaced and shrugged. The meeting ran long, as you might imagine. The Chandlery's monopoly gives them a lot of leverage. I imagine it does, I replied. I'm surprised they'd even consider it. Yeah, well, I'm not sure they are, frankly. I think it's more PR than actual interest in the deal. So far they've talked a lot and tied us up in meetings, but we haven't had much success. Ms. Arione closed the lock behind them, and I led Ms. Kingsley and her shadow up the ladder to the galley. Ms. Maloney's soup salad and crusty loaf luncheon included a thick chicken stew, the aroma of which wafted out to the top of the ladder. I turned to Adrian and asked, Will you be joining us for lunch? He shook his head. No, sir, I'm on duty. He took up a position just inside the galley door and stood at a kind of parade rest. In that case, would you satisfy yourself that this area is secure and then return to the foot of the ladder? A look of surprise flashed across Miss Kingsley's face at the request, and she looked at Miss Maloney, who nodded once in reply. Ma'am? Adrian asked, looking to Miss Kingsley for instructions. Miss Kingsley looked around at our faces before speaking. Yes, please, Adrian. I'll call you if I need you. He looked uncertain, but had no grounds for objection, and with a small half-bow of his own, exited the galley. I could hear his steps on the ladder. With a nod, I dispatched Miss Arione to confirm he'd fully complied. Miss Kingsley's eyebrows furrowed. Miss Maloney stepped into the gap by crossing to Miss Kingsley and greeting her warmly with a hug. Thank you, Kirsten. So much has happened. She stepped back and added, Please, sit. Let's get some lunch and you can tell me what's happening here. Miss Kingsley allowed Miss Maloney to guide her to a seat and looked curiously at Chief Stevens, who smiled warmly. Miss Maloney made the introductions. Chief, this is Kirsten Kingsley. She's fleet operations for DST and one of my oldest friends. Kirsten, engineering first officer Margaret Stevens. The two women shook hands briefly, the chief murmuring an appropriate greeting, but allowing Miss Maloney to control the conversation. Miss Kingsley looked confused. Where's Gramps? she asked, peering from Miss Maloney to the chief and back again. Miss Maloney frowned. What do you mean? We settled at the table, and Miss Maloney started serving, filling bowls of soup and passing them around. Miss Kingsley turned to the chief. You're the chief engineer here, right? The chief smiled her patient smile. Indeed I am. Miss Kingsley turned back to Miss Maloney. Chris, where's Gramps? Miss Maloney frowned again. What do you mean, where's Gramps? I fired him months ago. We put him ashore here on Diurnia in, what was it? She turned to me. February? March? I finished helping myself to the salad and passed the serving bowl to the chief. March, I think. Miss Kingsley's face clouded in concern. You fired him? She looked back and forth between Miss Maloney and me. I couldn't work with him, I told her flatly. Miss Maloney leaned forward. Kirsten, you really don't know this? Miss Kingsley shook her head. No, this is the first I've heard of it. I don't understand. Miss Maloney reached out and placed her fingers on Miss Kingsley's forearm. Kirsten, she said, her voice low. He was leaking to the newsies. Miss Kingsley pulled back in shock. Not Gramps. Miss Maloney nodded, a sad smile on her face. We were getting a lot of attention, some digitals from inside the ship even. We found the originals on his tablet. It took a few heartbeats for Miss Kingsley to process that bit of news, but she frowned in concern. How is that even possible? It's worse, Chris. 
Miss Maloney gripped Miss Kingsley's forearm and leaned forward. Gramps, Chief Bailey, is dead. He died in a fight on Greenfields a couple of weeks back. The news stunned Miss Kingsley. I could see the surprise wash through her, leaving her expression blank with disbelief. She recovered after a few heartbeats and her mind kicked back online. You're going to have to back up. She looked from Ms. Maloney to the chief, to me, then back to Ms. Maloney. The chief and I ate while Ms. Maloney briefed Ms. Kingsley. Ms. Kingsley rocked back further in her seat at each new detail. This is impossible, she said, when Ms. Maloney finished. Unfortunately, it's not, I said. The question is whether or not Ames Jarvis is behind it. He seems like the only one with something to gain. I can't believe Ames would send somebody to kill you. She looked back and forth between us again. Either of you. Any of you. Well, you know as much as we do now, I said. We thought maybe you'd know because Chief Bailey worked for DST. The word of his death must have been passed up the line by TIC by now. Maybe it was, but he doesn't work for DST. She stopped and corrected herself. Didn't work for DST. She sighed and looked to Ms. Maloney. I can't believe this. I've known him forever. Ms. Maloney frowned, but I asked the question first. Who did he work for? All our bodyguards are subcontractors. We hire them through Umbra, Umbra Security. Adrian, too? I asked. All of them, sure. Chief Stevens spoke for the first time. Who owns Umbra? Ms. Kingsley shook her head. I have no idea. They've always handled DST security. Did Kurt work for them? I asked. Just bodyguard? Miss Kingsley frowned, then shook her head. No, I don't think he did. Kurt joined us when Father was elected to the CPJCT, Miss Maloney said. I was under the impression that he worked for them. All their members have bodyguards. We sat there for a few heartbeats. My half-eaten lunch lost its appeal. Miss Maloney summed up the situation succinctly. So, we don't know who we're supposed to be watching out for now. Chapter 78, Diurnia Orbital, November 22nd, 2373. The answer, when it came, was as shocking as it was unexpected. We spent months looking over our shoulders at every shadow. Every time we set our passengers ashore, we swept the compartments to make sure they left nothing behind. We did background checks on every new set of passengers we took aboard. We stopped our regular pattern of Diurnia to Kazyunenko to Martha's Haven and back breaking up the routine in hopes that would keep our adversary off balance. Through it all, Chief Stevens helped keep us calm. She was completely unflappable, endlessly patient, and tirelessly giving of herself and her time. She watched films during movie nights, entertained the passengers, many of whom were closer to her age than mine. What she lacked in the critical art of cinema, she made up for in a nearly bottomless well of anecdote and humor. The discussions about the films often went on well after midnight, liberally fueled by Ms. Maloney's cellar. As for me, I played the role of aloof captain. I tried to maintain a pleasant demeanor, particularly when around passengers. In truth, I hid on the bridge, or in my cabin most of the time, showing up for meals, helping out in the galley occasionally, but mostly trying to stay out of sight. Most nights found me on the bridge, staring through the armor glass at the lifeless void beyond. The deep dark stared back, the unwinking eyes of billions of suns, so many that clusters of them were merely smudges against the black. 
would have been a mistake to say I felt sorrow or grief or any of the things that one might associate with losing a love. The brutal circumstances under which the knife cut her from my life should have left me angry, bitter, something. Instead, I felt numb. I stared into the deep dark and felt that the true emptiness existed inside me. My lifeline to the world of the living ran through Chief Stephen's hands. Every single day we did Tai Chi. Every day for at least a stand, sometimes two. I didn't feel numb and empty. I felt nothing. The movements filled my being. My mind left off the incessant replay of a scene I never wanted to remember and couldn't seem to forget. I became the movements. I was able to step out of myself and rejoin the universe, if only briefly. Sometimes on the bridge, I'd close my eyes and visualize what the Tai Chi must look like from the outside. The chief and I, two tiny, fragile beings dancing on the tongue of a metal whale. I imagined what it would look like through a video camera, panning around us as we moved. I could see us even as I mentally pulled the camera outside the hall and further and further into space. The solid hall pitted and dark, blocking the view, yet knowing we were there, inside, unseen. I pulled back further and further, until at last the ship itself became lost amid the sparks of distant suns. Slowly, over the days and weeks, Chief Stephen's quiet support pulled me back. When the news broke and we just finished our morning workout, the empty cargo bay echoed with our quiet footfalls even over the ever-present sounds of the blowers. I stood there at the end of our final set, filled with the warmth that my body generated as it moved, what Sifu Numar would have called my chi. Skipper, Chief, you're going to want to see this. Miserioni stood at the top of the ladder, beckoning us up. The Chief and I shared a glance, and with something like regret, I broke the mood and started for the ladder. Miserioni, still at the top, had some odd expression on her face that might have been excitement or impatience. We stepped into the galley to find Ms. Maloney sitting at the table elbows on the surface and both hands clapped across her mouth as if to prevent herself from speaking. She stared at the console screen and I could hear the sound of a newsie as I stepped into the compartment. Recapping this breaking story, a spokesman for the TIC tells reporters that longtime businessman and financier William Simpson has been arrested on suspicion of murder. I groped for a chair and fell heavily into it as the audio track faded behind the roaring in my ears. The talking head cut away to images of William Simpson being escorted off the orbital's lift and restraints. He looked a bit disheveled, as if rousted from his bed and dressed in a hurry. He kept his face turned and his eyes squinted against the worst of the lights shining in his face from the surrounding newsy cameras. In spite of myself, I felt shocked at how old and frail he looked. The newsy's voice edged back into my awareness as her breathless excitement carved at my credulity. The scene cut to footage of a TIC officer, obviously speaking to press from behind a podium, but the newsie's voice overlaid the audio track so he couldn't actually hear what he was saying. Authorities investigating a suspected homicide in Greenfield's orbital earlier this year seized records from the executive protection firm Umbra earlier this week. Again, TIC agents arrested financier and businessman William Simpson at his home this morning. The newsie recycled the 60-second recap again and again, I realized that was all the information we were likely to get. Miss Maloney keyed the sound off, and the four of us looked around at each other, stunned. Nobody spoke for several moments. 
Miss Arione broke the silence. I don't get it. Why? Miss Maloney sighed and shook her head. Money. It has to be the money. She looked at Miss Arione. He's the only one likely to make more from taking the company public than Ames Jarvis. Miss Arione looked puzzled. How? Ames would make a profit on the shares that he owns. Simpson, or his firm, would make a profit on every single share that trades hands. How many is that, though? Mazzarioni looked confused. Millions. Why try to kill you for it? Did he think he'd get away with it? Ms. Maloney shrugged. I have no idea. Maybe Herring was only supposed to hurt me, rough me up a little. Why did Chief Bailey get involved, though? Mazzarioni asked. Maybe it was a private deal between the chief and Mr. Herring. Maybe the chief wanted to get back at us for firing him. I doubt we'll ever know. Unless they find Herring, Chief Stevens suggested. On the screen, the Newsies report shifted to images of men in business suits standing in a windswept field, and Ms. Maloney slapped a key to shut off the terminal. Chapter 79, Martha's Haven Orbital, December 11, 2373. When the authorities arrested William Simpson, it gave us a bit of closure. Every time we got back to Diurnia, we were deluged anew with breathless reporting of nothing and the endless commentary on the lack of real information coming out of the trial. With each day that went by, we felt more secure and even resumed our traditional dinners ashore. By November, we were going ashore in pairs, and if we were watchful, a certain level of awareness seemed appropriate. We visited Martha's Haven enough that we developed some favorite eateries. When it came time for dinner there, we almost always wound up at Noble's. The proprietor, Fred Noble, ran a comfortably eclectic establishment where beer drinkers could mingle with wine drinkers and all could enjoy a menu that ranged from meatloaf and mashed potatoes to prime rib au jus, from macaroni and cheese to an orbital high souffle. He served everything from fish to veg to chicken to you name it. Every time we got back there, he had a new recipe for us to try. We were never disappointed. When we walked through the door, Roxy, the maitre d', recognized us at once. We only made the trip to Martha's Haven four times during the stanier, but if it was enough for us to pick out favorite restaurants, it was also enough for the restaurants to give us celebrity status. I think part of the celebrity came not from Ms. Maloney's being heir to the DST fortunes, but from the ship itself. The extra bit of attention that Ms. Maloney engendered helped, but the stories about what went on aboard the Iris on the long voyages under the stars were becoming embarrassing. "'Welcome back, Captain,' she said, as we walked through the doors. "'Fred will be so pleased you made it this trip.' She nodded to the rest of the crew and scooped up four menus before striding purposely through the dining room to a booth situated out of direct sight of the door and tucked into a curving banquette that gave us a modicum of privacy. She seated us, ran through the normal hostess ritual, and then disappeared into the kitchen. Chief Stephen seemed quietly amused, and Miss Arione started to go into her bodyguard trance, staring at everybody around us looking for exits and generally running a mental threat assessment on everything she could see, including a couple of the larger plants. Miss Maloney caught her eye and gave her a little head shake. She subsided a bit. She still paid more attention to what was happening around us than the table itself, but under the circumstances, I couldn't blame her. As the meal started spooling out onto the table, Fred appeared, a slightly amused look on his face. It's always wonderful to see you all. Welcome back. Oh, thank you, Fred. 
The vote was unanimous this trip. After that amazing chocolate amaretto tiramitsu we had last time, we decided we needed to come back to see what you had in store for us today. He beamed. Excellent. I think you'll find a few new tasties on the menu. Speaking of which, let me go see what's on the card for desserts tonight. With a cheerful smile, he turned and sailed back through the tables toward the kitchen. I watched him go, stopping here and there to shake a hand and smile a greeting. Eventually, he made his way across the dining room and disappeared through a swinging door that led to the kitchens. That was when I saw the man sitting alone at the table beside the door. He was not staring at me, precisely, but more like trying to make eye contact. He looked vaguely familiar, but I didn't place him until he stood up and started walking toward the table. Kurt. I must have said it aloud because everybody at the table looked at me and then at the man approaching. In a jovial voice that was just a hair too loud, he called to me, Captain, what a surprise! By then he'd crossed to the table and Ms. Arione was twitching in defense mode. I half stood and shook his hand, but before I could speak, he continued, I don't know if you remember me, but we met a few months back on Diurnia. I'm Grant, Grant Witherspoon. His eyebrow arched just slightly. Of course, Mr. Witherspoon. What a surprise seeing you here. He nodded to the people around the table and stepped closer, lowering his voice with a sheepish look around as if he'd only just realized what a scene he'd made. With a smooth movement, he slipped in beside Chief Stevens with a smile and a nod, leaning in to speak to all of us in a much reduced volume. Chris, I'm sorry about your father. He was a good guy. What are you doing here? she asked softly. Looking for you, Lot, he said with a grin. Your red-haired friend disappeared into the deep dark. We heard, I said. TIC said the ship jumped, but they didn't say where they were going. He jumped to a place between the systems. Odin's, I asked. Good guess. We tracked him that far, but he disappeared after that. Don't know if he finally aggravated somebody and got shoved out an airlock, or if he caught another ship to some other hidey hole. We're still tracking him, so we'll hope for the best. For now, he's somewhere out there in the deep dark. Why? Miss Maloney asked. Why'd he do it? She nodded. He wasn't supposed to. It was just supposed to be a smash and dash. He nodded at Ms. Maloney. You were supposed to be the only casualty, laid up long enough to force the ship to leave you behind. Missing a movement like that would have given him all the leverage he needed to get Jairus to take the company private. Willie Simpson was really behind it then? Oh, yes. We've been watching him since the Mira Fiori went public in 71. He's been skirting the edges. Too many people have conveniently died. Ms. Maloney blanched. He didn't kill... Kurt shook his head. No. Unfortunately, your father was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He looked at her earnestly. Believe me, we looked real hard. We? Chief Stevens asked. Joint Committee on Security, he said. We don't like it when we lose a client. When I got freed up, the committee reassigned me to the team that's working on your little red-haired friend. He turned to me. We last saw him on Dre, but he dropped out of sight at the end of November. We picked up his trail on Greenfields, but kept hearing that he was on Kazyanenko and here on Martha's Haven. It didn't make sense, so we sent teams to each place. We didn't make the connection with your ship until it was too late. Unfortunately, by the time we got to Greenfields, it was over. But the break came with Bailey. He led us to Umbra. Umbra led us to Simpson. That still makes no sense, I said. I think Simpson might have been nervous about sending out his enforcer alone, so he had Bailey make the link up and ride along. By the way, his real name is David Patterson, and he's going to be finding life very much more difficult thanks to you. How so? Ms. Maloney asked. Newsies. One of them got a nice digital of his face in the foreground of a shot of you two. They published the image, and we got the original. 
He'll be showing up as a featured story on Galaxy Hunter real soon now. Somebody will see him. His hand went to his ear, and his eyes unfocused for a split second. I realized he wore a much more discreet communications device than he had when working for Jeff Maloney. Time's up, mustache, he said as he slipped back out of the booth. Sorry I can't stay. Have a date with the deep dark in about three stands, and I don't want to be late. He looked around at each of us. Safe voyage. You're safe now. Nobody's paying him, so there's no incentive. With the last nod, he disappeared into the crowd. Ms. Arione sighed as she watched him go. We all turned to look at her. Oh, sorry, she said. I just admire any man that big who can disappear so smoothly without anybody noticing. Chief Stevens turned her head to look at where he'd gone and then tisked. Kids these days. She turned to look back at Ms. Arione. When I was your age, I'd have been admiring how nicely he filled out that suit. Ms. Arione blushed. Chief, he's as old as the captain. Why would you even have considered it? I'm wounded, you know, stung to the quick, I said, my mouth twitching as I tried to control the grin. She blushed again. Sorry, Captain, I didn't mean... I held up my hand. Yes, you did, Miss Arione, but it's okay. I am old. The chief appraised me with a long look before turning to Miss Maloney. He wears it well, don't you think? Oh, his age? She smiled, and there was something warm and sympathetic in it that I couldn't remember seeing before. Yeah, you know, when I first met him, I wasn't so sure. She turned back to the chief. I think he's beginning to grow on me. Enough. You make me sound like some kind of rash, I said, holding up my hands. Let's order dessert and get on with this, leaving me and my age out of it, okay? They all smirked, but I got a good-natured chorus of I eyes back. We finished our dinner in relative good spirits. Chapter 80, Martha's Haven System, December 17, 2373. Ms. Maloney found me on the bridge while the passengers watched the movie. She didn't need to look very hard. I always spent the evenings there. Besides the morning Tai Chi sessions with Chief Stevens, I felt most at peace, surrounded by the star-dusted blackness of the deep dark. Being in the cabin still hurt too much, and the guilt that somehow I'd caused her death by violating my own rules a kind of karmic leveling, gnawed at me. Intellectually, I knew I probably suffered survivor's guilt, but once the anger had burned out and I had to accept she was gone, I often found myself sitting in the near dock of the bridge, agonizing over what I should have done differently. Got a tick, Captain? she asked, picking her way up the ladder with a mug in each hand. Of course, Miss Maloney. She handed me one of the cups and took a seat on the engineering station beside me. I wanted to talk about what happens next. I sipped the hot coffee and tried to wrap my head around the idea of a future. My horizon of opportunity had shrunk to cargoes for the next port, to booking passage for the next run. What are you thinking? I found myself strangely detached. In a few days, Ms. Maloney's stanier in space would be at an end. Technically, when she signed the articles, she'd made a two-year commitment. In reality, as captain, I could put her ashore at any point without penalty. I think I like it out here, she said, turning to look at the stars. It's peaceful. I let my gaze be drawn to follow hers. It is, I agreed. She caught my eyes with hers. I'd like to stay out here, Captain. What about DST? What about it? You're going to be the majority stockholder. You'll inherit the CEO position. How will you run the company from out here? She shrugged and twisted her mouth into a half grin. I don't have to be CEO. I can direct the board to hire one. 
She lifted her mug to her nose and inhaled deeply before taking a sip. You'd do that. Why not? Nobody really believes I know how to run a shipping company. Her wry comment forced a single snort of laughter from me. I'm not sure I know, Ms. Maloney, even with just one ship. I can't imagine what it must take to keep a fleet like DSTs flying. That made her laugh. Actually, I can imagine. Lots of meetings, long hours, and very little else. Her gaze turned inwards for a few heartbeats, and she looked sad. I was away a lot after I reached a certain age, but the strongest memory I have of my father is coming home for visits only to have him constantly being called out for this or that or the other thing. But truthfully, I have no idea, really. It was a job he grew up with, learned at his father's knee, as it were. So what are you thinking? I'm thinking I direct the board to hire Ames Jarvis as CEO. Kirsten thinks highly of him. I trust her judgment, even if he's been a pain in my side for this stan year. Honestly, I don't know that I can blame him for any of it. How much was his doing and how much was Simpson's manipulations from off stage? I don't know. I'm going to have to talk with him, of course. Cutting me off from my own assets was a bit much. I've had a lawyer working on that on Diurnia since the day I found out. The Stanier will be up before that does any good, I'm afraid. He does know his business, and the business of DST, so whatever my personal feelings about the weasel, I think he's got to know more about keeping the company going than I do. Part of me found the idea infuriating. We'd spent the better part of a Stanier trying to earn Christine Maloney her birthright. For most of that time, we'd seen Ames Jarvis as the enemy, the person who stood in the way. The struggle cost Greta her life, and now this woman was caving in. Another part of me realized that, logically, Jarvis never was the enemy. He was just a distraction to keep us from seeing the reality under the surface. The detached, distant part of me noticed that I should have felt more, that the idea should have evoked some reaction other than numbness. After a few ticks of contemplation, I finally roused myself to ask, so we'll just keep going like we are? That's what I wanted to talk to you about, Captain. She paused to gauge my reaction. I'd like to direct DST to buy you out. Buy me out? She nodded slowly. We can make it worth your while, and what I've seen here is that there's an untapped market in luxury travel. I thought I should be more upset by the idea. Even if I didn't sell out, DST's entry into the market with their deeper pockets and extensive infrastructure meant that I would have serious competition. I should have felt betrayed by the idea. But there was something but there was something about it that appealed to me in a perverse way. Why should I sell? She sighed and looked down into her cup for a few heartbeats before looking me in the face. Sympathy floated in her eyes. Because you're only going through the motions here. Because what started out as a wonderful adventure, a new life for you and Greta, has been snatched away. She leaned toward me and smiled. Having spent a few days in my father's residence after he died, I have some idea about what you must go through every time you go into engineering, every time you go into the cabin. I sighed and nodded, unable to speak past the sudden lump in my throat. She gave a sideways shrug and a wry smile. You've helped me see my future with new eyes, Captain. The least I can do is help you on your way to yours. You don't think my future is on the bridge? Maybe. Just not this bridge. That strange sense of looking at myself through a camera outside the ship came back. 
while some small voice in my head screamed. The rest of me couldn't rouse enough feelings to respond with more than a grunt. Instead, I focused on the practicalities. Will you need a few days in port to establish your position with DST? If it would be convenient to plan for an extended stay, Captain, that will give me time to pitch the idea to the board. Maybe between now and our arrival you can work out what it is I'll be pitching. I looked at her dumbly. If you don't want to sell, I'll still want to work on the iris, Captain. It's the restaurant I've always wanted to have. It seems funny for a rich kid to say, but the dilettante lifestyle has never appealed to me. She paused, considering me for a moment. It really is up to you, Captain. I just wanted to let you know you have options. I nodded my thanks, unable to speak. With a smile, she stood and slipped from the bridge, leaving me sitting in the command chair of a life I no longer recognized. The idea that I might sell off my ship so soon after getting it seemed wrong. But the thought of spending the rest of my life being reminded of my failures, of Greta, seemed worse. I sat there, contemplating the deep dark, feeling whipsawed by indecision for Stanermore. In the end, the decision washed over me as soon as I stepped back into the cabin, and it felt right as sinking into a hot bath. In the end, it wasn't the money or the position on the ship. It wasn't some nebulous notion of quitting when things got tough and the feeling that I should be tougher or more resilient or more determined. One might argue that I could have been smarter, but hindsight is a useless guide to the past. At best, it gives us lessons we need to take into the future. The unavoidable truth lay in the emptiness of a cabin that had once, if, oh, so very briefly, been filled with possibility. Chapter 81 Diurnia Orbital January 1, 2374 I pulled the last ship suit out of my grav trunk and laid it on the pile on the bed. The two trunks yawned, and the cabin looked like a rummage sale had exploded in it. I snickered a little at the mess. At the point where I should have been packing to leave the ship, I unpacked everything I owned. Well, I love what you've done with the place, Skipper. I turned to see Miss Arione standing in the door, eyeing the shambles. Her eyes were no longer rimmed with dark circles, but she still looked haunted. After Greta's death, she'd been racked with the guilt of failure. I'd been so lost in my own fog that it had fallen to Chief Stevens and Ms. Maloney to help her through it. I shook my head, surveying the mess. There's stuff in here I'd forgotten I had. Are you going to get rid of it? I scanned the room, surveying the collected artifacts of two decades as a spacer. Some of it, I said. There's no need to carry around worn-out ship suits and boxers with no stretch left in the waist. She nodded at the obviousness of it, and her eyes skipped lightly around the room. I tried to see the piles as she might be seeing them, a few decent sets of civilian attire, three mounds of ship suits and four pairs of ship boots in various states of decrepitude. I sighed. It's not very impressive when it's all laid out like that. She laughed. A small pile of objects decorated the desk, and her eyes were drawn to the collection. I followed her gaze, and a rough bundle reminded me of a task I needed to do. I crossed to the desk and unrolled the Welkies. Come see what you think of these, Miss Arione. Her eyes wrinkled with curiosity, and she picked her way through the mess, and then widened as I pulled the first of the small figures out of its cloth-wrapped cocoon, laying it down on the desk and unwrapping the next. 
When I finished with the last one, I stepped back. What do you think, Miserioni? When you said you had a Welkie, Captain, I thought you meant a Welkie, as in one. You didn't tell me you had a whole pile. She never looked up from the desk. Her gaze darted from figure to figure to figure. She focused on one and started to reach for it, but stopped and looked over at me. May I? Of course. The figure was a badger, resting on its haunches, sitting almost upright with its head turned, to look to the left as if it had just heard a sound. It's lovely, Captain. She smiled, really smiled, not the half-formed rictus approximating a smile that I'd seen on her face for weeks. What is it? It's a badger. Ornery little beasts from Earth. They're tough enough to survive in a variety of climates and conditions, and they make excellent niche-dwellers on terraforming operations. He's kind of cute, she said. He's yours, I told her. She looked at me in shock. No, Captain, I couldn't possibly. I handed her the bit of soft cloth he'd been wrapped in all that time and the length of red string he'd been tied with. That's already done, Miss Arione. For the first time in our acquaintance, I saw Miss Arione speechless. Her mouth opened and closed a couple of times, and she looked from me to the badger and back to me again before she was able to get her jaw under control. Are you sure, Skipper? I was just admiring it. She started to put it back down on the desk where she'd found it. Do you know the story of the Welkies, Miss Arione? My question stopped her. Not really, Skipper, just that they're really rare and are some kind of good luck charm. They're carved on a planet called St. Cloud, over in the Dunsany Roads quadrant. The shaman who live on the south coast collect driftwood and carve the figures. There's an indigenous snail, a whelk, that lives in the tide pools, and the shells have a purple color. Some are dark purple, and some have just a bare wash of color. Story is, the darker the hue, the more powerful the whelky. She held the carving up to see the bit of shell embedded on the badger's chest as a heart. Is that what this is? Yes, Miss Arione. This one's really purple. How purple do they get? I don't know, but that's on the upper end of the scale. She looked over at me again. But what do they do? Power for what? I don't know. The story is that the Welkie finds its owner and the person it's supposed to go to. Usually it's given out by the village shaman to somebody who needs strength or guidance. She arched an eyebrow in my direction. I snorted a laugh. Yes, well, it's just a story. Do people believe it, she asked. I drew in a deep breath and let it out slowly as I considered some do, some don't. Mostly the skeptics dismiss it as religious mumbo-jumbo. What do you think, Skipper? I think I've carried my dolphin for Staniers. There's something soothing about holding the wood. I don't feel like I'm influenced by some supernatural force or anything, but perhaps it serves as a kind of centering device, a physical manifestation of focus. She thought about that for a few heartbeats and then looked down at the collection on the desk again. You must have needed a lot of guidance, Skipper. I laughed and felt something cold and brittle snap inside me. Yes, well, these aren't my guides. They weren't given to me. Where did you get them? Her brow furrowed in confusion. Stan years ago, on a trip through St. Cloud on the Lois McKendrick, back before I went to the academy, I found a guy in the flea market there who sold them to me. I thought you said they had to be given. Yes, well... And that was before I knew what they were, and I bought ten of them for private trading goods. I just have never been able to sell one. Well, some trader you are, Skipper. She twitted me even as she held her badger up close to her face. 
I chuckled, and she looked over at me. So, how long have you been lugging this around? I tried to add up the stanyards, and I couldn't. Since before the academy, maybe twenty stanyards. She blinked in astonishment. That long? She looked closely at the shell, turning it so the light gleamed. Do you suppose it's still got power? As much as it ever did, probably. She gave me one of her exasperated glances and then nodded at the collection on the desk. Looks like you've got your work cut out for you. I looked at the remaining figures. My work? She nodded, perfectly straight-faced, and zinged me. At the rate you're giving these out, you're going to be an old, old man before you're done. I laughed then, for what might have been the first time in weeks, maybe a stanier. The warmth of it accelerated the thawing inside me that the daily sessions of Tai Chi with Chief Stevens had started. She looked pleased with herself, and that felt good, too. What's all this jocularity? Ms. Maloney asked from the doorway. She wore a smartly tailored business suit and had just returned from a meeting ashore. Ms. Arione has been pointing out how old I'm getting, I told her. Seasoned, Captain, not old, Ms. Maloney told me with a grin of her own. She saw the spread of Welkies on the desk and gasped. Great, merciful Maud, how many of those do you have? Well, that's my entire collection, not counting this one. I pulled a dolphin from my pocket. My eyes snagged on the seabird that had belonged to Greta. I picked that one up from where it rested beside my console. And this one. She snickered but crossed to lean down and look at the figures. You've got more Welkies in one place than I've ever seen before. She frowned as she examined them. This might be the largest private collection in existence outside of St. Cloud. She looked up at me with a speculative grin. You want to sell them? No, these aren't for sale. Pity, she said, and resumed her study, carefully looking at each one. When she finished her examination, she stood and raised a hand to her mouth with a pensive frown. There are at least two, if not three, different artists work here. Do you know who they are? I shook my head. I thought they were all by the same guy. I don't think so. She pointed to the seabird and the dolphin that I held. Those two are obviously different from each other, but look at the details around the eyes for these. I leaned down and looked closely. Some don't have eyes. That's my point. The details are different, even though they all have a similar kind of overall technique with a smooth, flowing line. She pursed her lips. No, I'm pretty sure that there are at least three artists here, and a fourth counting your seabird there. I looked at the Welkies in my hands, the dolphin's smooth wood burnished to a high sheen from my constant handling of it over the stanyards, the seabird's stylized feathers giving the piece unique texture in the carving. I looked up to see Ms. Maloney looking at the dolphin a slight frown of concentration on her face. I held it out to her. Would you like to see it? She nodded, and I handed it to her. She did what every other person who ever held it had done. She held it in her hand and stroked the smooth back with the ball of one fingertip. She then held it up, turning her hand back and forth to watch the light shine on the wood and across the shell. This is a spectacular piece, Captain. Ms. Arione watched curiously from the side and I could see her looking at the dolphin, and then at the expression on Ms. Maloney's face. "'Would you like to have it?' I asked, surprised by the question as much as she was. The shock on her face was clear. "'Captain? That Welkie. Would you like to have it?' I looked at the collection on the desk. "'You can have any of them you want, if there's one there you like.' She glanced at the collection, but her fingers curled around the dolphin, and she turned back to look at me. "'But, Captain, this is yours.' I shook my head and held up the seabird. 
This is mine. You can have the dolphin if you like. You can't be serious, Captain. This is priceless. I thought about that for a few heartbeats, watching her face, seeing the dolphin already cupped protectively in her fingers. It had been with me for twenty staniers, seen me through the academy, all through my career up through the ranks. Somehow, it seemed fitting to leave it with her. Something in that moment, letting go of the past, accepting a future where I might spread my wings and fly, where I wanted to go, instead of being maneuvered and manipulated into taking the actions that would define my life. Something in that moment clicked into place with a nearly audible snap. I could feel my lips curling into a smile. Yes, I am. And it is, I said. But since I'm no longer your captain, please, call me Ishmael. Thanks for listening. I've said that many times over the last four years. Each time it becomes more heartfelt. As the demand for your attention increases, you continue to listen to my stories, continue to support my work. For that, I'm truly grateful. This is the last episode of Owner's Share and the last book in the Trader's Tales series. While this series is over, it's not the end of the golden age of the Solar Clipper, nor is this the last you'll see of Ishmael Wong. This journey may be over, but I've left the door open for him to step into a new journey, perhaps a new series. Only time will tell what those stories might be. Many of you have wanted to meet up with the old crew and catch up with the original members. That wasn't possible before. But with each new ending, there is a new beginning. With a new beginning, anything is possible. Thank you, everyone. You've made this portion of my personal journey something to remember. Until we meet again, safe voyage. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Jode and is used with permission of the artist. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Jode on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, or the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com. Dot com.